Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter by going to weirdhistorypodcast.com. It's a cliche to say you shouldn't meet your heroes. The implication is that they'll disappoint you because they will turn out to be merely human and not living embodiments of everything that is associated with them. I've said before on the podcast that I don't really believe in having heroes, and that's because I believe that we should learn from other people's experience, uh, gain value from their lives and their perspectives, but turning somebody into a flawless statue, either in the literal or metaphorical sense, I think is both really reductive and I also think it's dehumanizing. Taking somebody's complex humanity, good and bad, and turning that just into a symbol, uh, I don't think it is edifying for us, and I don't think it's fair to them. Now, all of that said, there are still a few people from the past that if given a chance, I would absolutely hang out with. If I had the chance to have Shakespeare as a dinner guest, I certainly would. If I had the chance to get drunk with Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, I would. He seems like a fun guy. Maybe really obnoxious. Who knows? I would certainly want to find out. There are people from the past that I would want to spend time with, but not the subject of our show today. Howard Phillips Lovecraft seemed like a terrible person to be in the same room with. Now, H.P. Lovecraft is an author that I really enjoy. I've read all of his fiction. Uh, and I really like how Lovecraft describes alienation and horror and dread and all of that. He's really good at creating that dark, horrible mood. But Lovecraft was, unfortunately, a dark, horrible person. He was a racist. He believed in horrible pseudoscientific things about the hierarchy of humanity. He probably didn't have great ideas around women, and by all accounts just seems to be kind of a pill. And I suspect that if he and I were sitting at a table drinking beer together, we would probably get to talking about the state of the world, history, or politics, and then start arguing, and I would not enjoy it at all. But, once again... I love his fiction. When people talk about being a fan of H.P. Lovecraft and grappling with those aspects of his personality, there are a few things you could do. You could ignore it, which is the irresponsible thing to do. You could present it as a footnote and say, hey, he was a great writer and a great artist, but... Or you could directly talk about how Lovecraft's ideas about race and about xenophobia and about how he felt dread at the very presence and existence of everybody who wasn't a wasp, informed his fiction. My guest today is Les Klinger, and Les Klinger has taken that third route, which I think is the most admirable and responsible and also most interesting route to take. Klinger has produced two annotated volumes of Lovecraft's fiction, and I have the second one. It is beautiful. It has a whole bunch of stories with photographs and footnotes and all this great stuff about Lovecraft's own time period and also the time periods Lovecraft was referencing in his stories. It is 
so good. I recommend it so much. But Klinger talks in our discussion about how Lovecraft's worldview was not incidental to his art. And I think this is a discussion that fans of Lovecraft, like me, and like Les Klinger, and like everybody, have to have when grappling with, say, Lovecraft, or Robert E. Howard, who wrote the Conan stories and has similar views, or even Isaac Asimov, who I love, but really kind of a sexist jerk. But anyway... I was really happy to talk to Les Klinger. He's an amazingly interesting guy to talk to. He has done very good work, not just on Lovecraft, but also on Dracula, on Frankenstein, on Sherlock Holmes. He bills himself as a consulting Sherlockian. He has made these amazing annotated volumes of classic fiction from the 1800s that's that's been really influential on generations of people who like horror and detective fiction and science fiction. And it was a joy to talk to him about his most recent project. So without further ado, Les Klinger on H.P. Lovecraft. Les Klinger, hello. Thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. So I recently got your new volume of the edited H.P. Lovecraft, Beyond Arkham. And it's my understanding that's the uh, second volume of of Lovecraft that you've annotated, right? Yes. Uh, the first one came out in 2014, uh, and it was just called the new annotated H.P. Lovecraft. It was it was a tough book to put together because um, I, I had originally set out 25 stories to include. Um, we were at uh, we were all way over 900 pages, and um, the editor said, "Look." We just, you know, it raises the price, et cetera. We got to cut a few stories. So we did. And then very happily about uh, two years ago, I guess, the end of 20, the beginning of 2017, he said to me, you know, this is selling really well. Uh, are there more stories? <laughs> are there enough for a second volume? <laughs> and I said, you bet. And uh, so it was a delight to put back the stories that I had to cut. And to add more that uh, that needed to be covered. So, yeah, I really enjoyed the volume. And uh, in fact, uh, you have one of my favorites in there. Um, yeah, the Dream Quest of Unknown Karath, which was uh, one yes. of the novellas. And I think that might be, I think that might be the first H.P. Lovecraft story I ever read, which was a weird way to get introduced to him. But how did you get into this? How did you get into annotating Lovecraft? Well, all my life, basically, I've been a science fiction reader. And I, I have to admit that prior to about 2010 or 11, something like that, I had really never read any Lovecraft, or at least it didn't stick with me. I knew who he was. He's been, he's so influential as a, as a uh, horror writer, as a science fiction writer, uh, that, you know, I sort of certainly knew the name, but that was it. And the process of picking books to annotate generally goes something like this. I come up with a really exciting project, pitch it to my uh, my friend and senior editor at Norton, uh, and mostly he says, no, that book doesn't really sell very well. You know, we want something with a little more impact. So, for example, um, Frankenstein, which is a book that uh, I annotated and came out in 2018, um, was a book, actually in 2017, was a book that he turned down several times saying, you know, it's a classic book, but it's just not 
and one that's got an audience. And I finally pointed out to him we were coming up with the 200th anniversary and it would be timely and all that. So he finally agreed to it. He actually suggested Lovecraft in response to my pestering about what about this, what about that. He said, what about Lovecraft? And I thought about it, looked into it and said, yeah, let's do it. And I, I must say, it was, I was so pleased. I, my first real exposure to what I would describe as the Lovecraft community um, was in 2013 at Necronomicon, uh, which is a convention <laughs> held in Providence. Um, and uh, it was it, it was a rebirth convention. The convention had last taken place sometime in the 1970s, um, which was sort of when Lovecraft first was gaining some uh, momentum, if you will, uh, among critics and fans and all that. Uh, 70s is really sort of when he was rediscovered. Um, but anyway, so I went to this con in 2013, and they were so welcoming and supportive of the idea. I think one of the big events in the history of Lovecraft's career was the Library of America volume that came out, uh, I think, in the late uh, 2000s. Um, I think that's about 10 years old now, edited by Peter Straub. I mean, it was a big deal because it's the Library of America. It was sort of canonization of him as a major American writer. And similarly, they viewed the inclusion of, of Lovecraft in the Norton Annotated Book Series as a big deal. Even if I was a total hack, it was a big deal that <laughs> he was interested in doing the books because it would be alongside classics like Dracula and Alice in Wonderland and Sherlock Holmes and Uncle Tom's Cabin and other great American literature, other great yeah. world literature. Yeah, so uh, I think we might be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here because um, I have read all of H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, I am sure that you have also read all of H.P. Lovecraft and are very familiar with um, a lot of, well, I haven't read all of his correspondence and I don't think I ever will, but we're very familiar with him. Some listeners might not be. So for listeners who aren't, could you give sort of a, you know, capsule description of who this guy that we're talking about was? Sure. Well, so the short of it is that this is a guy who um, was a virtually complete failure during his career, during his life. Born in 1890 um, in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, born to a family that best described as sort of shabby genteel. Uh, formerly had money, now their fortunes had declined. His father died in an insane asylum uh, from uh, syphilis. Um, when he was uh, uh, a little boy, uh, when he was 20, um, his mother died in the same asylum. Uh, Lovecraft was, uh, I think, kind of an odd duck as a child. He dropped out of high school. He was clearly brilliant, taught himself to read uh, Latin and Greek, was an avid student of, of uh, astronomy and wrote uh, columns on astronomy for the local newspapers. Um, and began to write short stories uh, at that time in the 19 in the 1910s um, when he was a, an old teenager um, and joined something called the Amateur Press Association. Now the Amateur Press Association has no modern equivalent um, except maybe the internet. Um, it was a loose network of people writing poetry, essays, stories, 
for sort of for each other. And they would publish them in what we now would call fanzines, small magazines, amateur magazines, and circulate them. Uh, and Lovecraft's beginning fiction was uh, in some of those. Uh, and he made friends and uh, his circles began to expand. He was lucky to submit some stories to uh, Farnsworth Wright, the editor of Weird Tales, which was a new, relatively new pulp magazine. Um, it was paying awfully, but it was the right audience. And Lovecraft's stories became very popular in Weird Tales. This is not to say he was a big success because they were paying very little and it was a tiny readership. But he was clearly the best known author of the bunch. Um, he built a circle of friends and, and, um, what's the right word? Uh, um, apostles, if you will, uh, younger writers, um, not all younger, other writers. They shared ideas. He was a prolific correspondent. He wrote literally tens of thousands of letters, average lengths, probably, you know, five to 10 pages long. Um, some people think there's as many as 100,000 letters extant from him, uh, in which he talked about his life and he talked about his philosophies and his ideas about story writing and all that. Um, when he died, uh, he sadly died quite young. He died, he was born in 1890 and died in 1937, stomach cancer. Uh, and he'd had at that point one book published. It was a small book that was one single story of his. Um, none of his quote novels had been published. None of his work had been collected. After he died, his friends Donald uh, Wandre and August Derleth uh, put together a collection called The Outsider and Other Stories. Uh, they formed a little publishing company and they published it. They got it in front of critics and influencers, and he began to get some recognition. Um, meanwhile, some of his friends, Clark Ashton Smith, Robert E. Howard, Robert Block, Fritz Leiber, these writers went on to influence more people, and Lovecraft's work became more and more known to the point where today it's certainly the case that writers like Stephen King, Neil Gaiman, Peter Straub, uh, Clive Barker, Dean Koontz, um, Caitlin Kiernan, the major horror writers and, and fantasy writers all know Lovecraft, Ramsey Campbell. They all know Lovecraft's work. They all deeply admire it, and they were heavily influenced by it in their own writing. Yeah, and what about, like, the uh, contents of, its, of his writing? I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, when they think of H.P. Lovecraft, they think of, say, Cthulhu, the giant squid yes. monster god or that kind of thing but people don't really go for him because it has monsters in it like what are the what are the th sort of themes and ideas that he found horrifying that he wove into his fiction well to to talk about that coherently i think we have to start with um the biographical aspect of lovecraft that i tried to address um directly in the book, and Victor Laval addresses directly in his introduction to the book, which is that Lovecraft was a racist. He was a bigot. He was um, an isolationist, if you will, in the sense, I'm not sure that's quite the right word. He believed that it was wrong for populations to um, 
coalesce and assimilate. Uh, he wanted uh, blacks in certain areas, you know, he wanted the blacks to be with black people and Latinos to be with Latin people and Filipinos to be with Filipinos. He was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and he didn't want those other people around. Um, he spent all but two years of his life um, living in Providence. He spent two years in New York, hated it, hated it with a passion. Uh, because he was surrounded by all those immigrants and people of color. Now, that attitude, I'm, I'm not sure whether I can say it was intentionally transformed or whether it was simply unconsciously and psychologically transformed. It was transformed into an idea about cosmic horror, which was that the more we learned from science about our universe and our world, the less significant it, it became clear that the less significant human beings were, um, that we are just mites on the, on the cosmos, fleas, if you will, uh, and surrounded by unknowable, horrible, um, superior beings, elder gods, um, and the like. And I think that is, there's a direct line from his own personal feelings of this sort of oppressive atmosphere of being surrounded by alien humans. And by the way, also clearly petrified that he too was going to go insane, that he had tainted blood and mm -hmm. was going to end up insane like his parents. Uh, that that all comes out in the stories. And it comes out in the stories in a way that I think normal people, that is to say, people who are not afraid they're going insane um, and who are not bigots um, uh, can appreciate. Um, they can not, and relate to and, and share those feelings. And that cosmic horror um, or the sense of what is commonly known as weird fiction um, has risen. Lovecraft himself promoted it and um, it's now, I have to say, popular, or at least more popular than it was during his day. Yeah, so uh, you brought it up before I did, um, which surprised me. I was going to, yeah, well, you, well, you have to. No, no yeah, um, no, 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 no pulling punches on that. Yeah, so something that's always sort of fascinated, like fascinated and repulsed me about Lovecraft is that his fiction is often about like the great wider world. And yet he seems incredibly afraid of the great wider world. He is somebody who in his writings, like loves to talk about, you know, history and the past and like, you know, the future and apocalypses and ancient things. And yet he seems to find just all of it threatening. Um, you like were annotating Lovecraft's work. And one of the things that I really wanted to ask you about is maybe this is a weird question to ask. What do you think of H.P. Lovecraft as like a student of history? Because he makes historical allusions to like ancient civilizations and other eras all the time throughout his writings. Absolutely. And like, what do you, yeah. And like, it, it, you've had a lot of exposure to it and thought about it and written about it. Like, what was he like as an amateur, I don't want to say amateur historian, but as like a, as a history fan. Well, I mean, I think he was a deep student of history, and um, you you said it exactly right. I mean, he there was a great deal of research reflected in his 
his books. Um, and uh, that's why it's so delightful to annotate because um, Lovecraft's theory of writing, one of his theories of writing, was that to write some su successful supernatural literature, which was what he was trying to do, um, you had to treat it, he said, like a hoax. It had to be 99% realistic. And then there's that 1% thread of fiction, of the part that is sort of off the charts. And so you take a book like uh, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward um, or uh, his uh, Under the Pyramids, which is in this collection. And they're so meticulously researched in terms of, in the first case, uh, the history of Rhode Island and, and New England and the colonial wars and all that. Uh, in the second case, uh, Egypt, its history, its architecture, and so on. Um, you know, that I think, as you say, he was a very careful student of these things, and it's reflected in his writing. These are not things he just dashed off. He spent a lot of time on this. He also cultivated the language. He fashioned or he, he imagined himself a sort of 19th century gentleman. Um, and so he deliberately set out to write in using antiquarian language because, again, he thought that that was the right way to convey horror, that you don't show the monster on camera, as you will, if you will. Um, you know, you, you, you leave mm -hmm. it suggested. It's the unnameable. Um, it's not a specific creepy crawly critter. Um, even Clulu, the most, the most famous of his uh, monsters, if you will, um, all we really know about Clulu is the way an idol looked. We're not even sure that the idol is an idol of Clulu, and the idol's only eight inches tall, um, and it's got creepy tentacle feelers coming down from its face, and it's got wings and claws and things like that. But is it real, or is it just somebody's imagining of what the real Clulu looks like? We never really see the, the monsters that are there in these stories. For example, um, I think one of, one of uh, his favorite, one of his two very favorite stories, and uh, one of mine is called The Color Out of Space. And we never see anything. This is a story essentially about an alien invasion. And all we ever see are some weird colored lights and the trees waving and things in that story. Um, but it's really, really creepy. Um, and there are others similar to that where the, the horror is all sort of off camera. Yeah, you mentioned, you actually mentioned a story that um, I want to ask you about specifically, Under the Pyramids, which was a collaboration between Houdini, right? Well, maybe, maybe. So Yeah, I mean, I think Houdini had nothing to do with it. Um, okay. Houdini lent his name to the story. But, uh, you know, I don't think he I think it just appeared in the magazine with his name on it. So, Still, I, I, that pairing is just such an amazing, like, little bit of, like, these two, like, big early 20th century figures. How did, how did that come about? Did Houdini just need a ghostwriter or, like, did they, did they correspond or? Yeah, well, Houdini was, Houdini was a... Houdini was uh, a, a very interesting man, and um, he was 
anxious to try and build something for himself that was beyond uh, just appearing on the stage. And so, of course, he was in movies. Uh, a lot of people don't remember that he was in movies. Um, and uh, he, quote, wrote a series of stories uh, for Weird Tales. Uh, and I think they were probably all ghostwritten, but he struck a deal with the editor that they would appear under his byline and uh, you know, he would get credit for writing these stories. So Lovecraft got the assignment to write this one. I've, I've never read any of the others, uh, but Lovecraft got the assignment to write this one, and I think it's one of his better stories. As you were as you were annotating these, like what what did you come to appreciate about Lovecraft? And also, were there any things about him that maybe you found like? And I asked I asked this as a Lovecraft fan, maybe like repetitive or annoying or that kind of thing, because as like you've probably gotten to know his writing better than most fans have. So like what about what changed? Uh, how well, did your relationship to him as a writer change? That's, that's, that's an interesting question. I, I had a, had a public conversation uh, about Lovecraft uh, a week or two ago with Joe Hill. Uh, we were doing a book event together and sitting on stage talking about our books. And he said, you know, Lovecraft was really oh a terrible writer. When you take the stories down to the sentence level and you read sentences, they're poorly constructed. They go on and on. They use way too many big words. And, and Joe's absolutely right about that, I think. Now, that doesn't mean that Joe Hill doesn't deeply admire Lovecraft's work. He does. But it's sort of more about the overall impression than it is the details. Um, and that's one of the things that's really clear when you have to sit there and write footnotes <laughs> for every single word that Lovecraft was the only one who knew what the heck it meant. Um, you have to keep looking up words and all that, um, which is, I, I don't, I don't like what he did. I don't think that that was a, a particularly good choice to use $10 words where a quarter word would have been good enough. I'm, I'm myself, I'm an advocate of the plain style, uh, sort of Hemingway-esque, if you will. But um, it's, uh, it's, it's worked, um, but it's not the way I would have written those stories <laughs> if I had any talent as a writer. He, he maybe doesn't do sentences well, but he does overall feel well. So his, his stories are like maybe greater than the sum of their parts. Yes, I think that's right. Well, there, there are other things that are, you know, disappointments. I mean, for example, as you read the entire Ouv, um, so I, I, I tell what I think is probably a made-up story about my friend Guillermo del Toro, who wrote the introduction for the first, for my annotated Frankenstein. So Guillermo was actually, this, this part is true, Guillermo was pitching, making a movie of At the Mountains of Madness, uh, which I think is probably Lovecraft's finest uh, work. And... I like to envision that the pitch meeting went something like this. So, Guillermo, who do you have in mind to play the female lead? At which point Guillermo would have said, well, there is no female lead. At which point the executives would have said, uh, thanks for coming to see us next. Uh, Lovecraft did not, could not write uh, women. True. And there are no noteworthy women characters in the stories 
it, it, with with one or two exceptions where, uh, for example, uh, Azanath, who is in the uh, uh, the thing on the doorstep, you know, it's a guy. It's a guy in a woman's mm-hmm. body, but it's a guy. So, you know, that's sort of as good as his females get. Um, there, there really aren't any noteworthy women, and that to me is really evident when you read all the stories. Maybe you read one or two, you kind of miss that. But when you read them all, and story after story, there are just no female characters that are even the slightest bit interesting. Uh, I guess the giant goat, the giant cosmic goat with like 10,000 young does not count as a female character. Right. No, I get that doesn't really yeah. count. Um, if you were to give people a recommendation of places to start with Lovecraft, what would you say are some of his more accessible stories? Sure. Well, I mean, sort of. I mean, you mean I have to say more than buy my books? Okay. okay. Well, so, okay. Somebody, um, somebody cracks open the first volume. That no, no, no. I'm just okay. teasing. I'm just teasing. Uh, well, so somebody asked me what I thought were the the uh, four or five best stories. Uh, certainly The Call of Clue is a very important story to sort of get the whole picture of Lovecraft's philosophy. Uh, and it's probably in some ways his best known story. Um, and uh, I think it's very readable. Um, I'm very fond of the case of Charles Dexter Ward, um, which is a really creepy story about, I'll say sort of about reincarnation. Um, It's one of his longer stories, um, and I think I had, my goodness, I think I had 300 footnotes uh, for that story alone um, because it's so dense with historical information. But it's really, really good. Um, At the Mountains of Madness, as I already said, I think is a fantastic, almost straight science fiction novel. Um, And people who read it will say to themselves, wait a minute, did I see this movie? Oh, yeah, John Carpenter's The Thing, Um, which is, uh, in fact, um, based on the original movie, The Thing, which is clearly based on John W. Campbell's short story, who goes there, which is clearly based on At the Mountains of Madness. Um, beyond that, uh, I think that m- my favorites um, would include the music of Eric Zahn, which is a very weird little sort of dreamlike story. That, too, was one of Lovecraft's favorites. Uh, the Color Out of Space is a great story. Um you know, they go on and on. I mean, the different reasons why I like different stories. One of the things that's interesting to see is the different styles in which Lovecraft wrote. When he was starting out, he wrote a, a lot of what um, he described as his Poe stories. He loved Edgar Allan Poe's work and really tried to write like Poe in his youth. Um, there are the stories that are now called Dunsany-like um, although Lovecraft, in fact, did not know the work of Lord Dunsany until hmm. later in his career, some of his stories are very similar. Dream Quest, for example, is very Dunsanian in style. But some of his stories, the ones that I've mentioned, are really truly original. They are, they are uniquely Lovecraftian in style. They don't copy anybody. And I think they're great stories. Uh, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that uh, we should touch on, that we should talk about uh, before we go? Well, I guess I want to emphasize a couple of things. One is that people associate Lovecraft with tentacles and creatures from under the sea and so on. 
what's now known as the mythos. And a lot of that is, is stuff that's grown up after Lovecraft. It's not really there in the stories. There is stuff about tentacles and a few stories. I should have mentioned um, the, uh, uh, the Shadow Over Innsmouth, which is another fabulous story. Um, and it has hints of tentacles and undersea creatures and all that. But that's not a common theme to his stories. It only appears in one or two. Although I did love, when I was doing my research for the book, discovering tentacle porn. Um, uh, the, the best of which I thought was a book oh my called God. The Booty Call of Clue. Yeah. Um. But so that's one point I wanted to make. The other point I wanted to make is I don't think Lovecraft gets enough credit as a science fiction writer. Um, as I said, okay. At the Mountains of Madness is science fiction. The Shadow Out of Time is science fiction. Beyond the Wall of Sleep, science fiction. Um, and so on. He was, this is the early days of science fiction. Einstein's theories were just being published and discussed. He was fascinated by it. He was fascinated by the astronomy discoveries. He was he was the sort of there for the discovery of Pluto. Um, and he doesn't get enough credit as, a, as an important early science fiction writer. All right. Well, Les Klinger, uh, thank you so much for being on with us today. My pleasure. Hope you all enjoy that. Find more about Les Klinger over at lesliesklinger.com. And, of course, go over to weirdhistorypodcast.com to support the podcast. Again, this is a member-supported show now. So go over to our site, sign up, and as a thank you, I'm now creating exclusive members' content. So go over to weirdhistorypodcast.com, do the thing, and get yourself even more Joe Streckert in your life. Uh, go give us ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or other podcast networks. I'm on social media. The show is facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. And I'm on Twitter at Joe Streckert. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. It's going to be too hot to breathe today. Everybody's out here on the streets. Somebody's opened up the fire hydrant. Cold water rushing out in sheets. Some kid in a Marcus Allen jersey asks me for a cigarette. Companionship is where you find it. So I take what I can get. I'll catch on the card like funhouse mirrors. Stick to the shadows and I.